Matthew chapter 19, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Everyone wants to be happy. I believe that's true with all my heart. Everyone wants to be happy, but I don't think everyone knows how to be happy. We're going to be talking about Jesus and his plan for singles today. And we're told that the way to be happy if you're single is to get married. Or, even more commonly, you're told, you'll only be happy if you can have sex. That kind of intimacy is essential. So then the question arises, is it possible for an unmarried Christian who wants to follow Jesus and wants to follow the teachings of Jesus to be happy while he or she is single? So for the answer, I'd like to turn, well, to the most prominent single in all of history, Jesus, God incarnate, the God of love incarnate. And I'd like to have you look at this passage one more time, Matthew chapter 19. And I'd like to look at it with these titles in mind. First of all, Christ's call, and then Christ's redemption, and then Christ's gift. And it's all around the topic of singles. First of all, Christ's call. He calls some of us to be married, and he calls some of us to be single. I think it's clear, as we've been looking at Matthew 19, that Jesus' views on sexuality are not very popular today. And so that gives us a choice. Either we laugh at him and say, this is just nonsense, or we ignore him and say, I'm not going to live by this, or we bow before him and, as Lord and God and say, this is the wisdom of a loving God for all of us, for me and for society. So let's look at this now about Jesus' call. Jesus makes this very bold statement in verse 9, after having talked about marriage, being questioned about a divorce, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples immediately react. Verse 10, the disciples said, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I don't know if you 
detect a mocking tone in their voice as I do. I think if we had been there, if we could have seen their voices and the tone of their voice, we might have been able to see that. I think they're saying, oh boy, if marriage is like a life sentence, then forget it. I don't want it. That's too tough. I don't know what was behind the disciples' remark. There's some mysteries in the language here, but it could be that they were influenced by the teachings of a famous rabbi named Hillel. We mentioned him last week, but his teachings were prominent. They seem to have been the accepted teachings in the majority of the Jewish world at that time. He lived about 100 years before Jesus, and him and another rabbi named Shammai were both in the Sanhedrin, actually both leaders in the Sanhedrin, both were Pharisees, and both were theological opponents. So they, you know, they would always debate with each other. So there was a school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. I mean, they would talk about all kinds of interesting arguments, like, is it okay to tell a white lie? And it was, you might be interested in this, it was framed like this, is it okay to tell a bride on her wedding day that she's beautiful? I mean, suppose she's not. What do you do? So Shammai was strict. He says, no lies. That's it. You can't tell her she's beautiful if she's not. Hillel was softer. He said, every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. And Hillel was also softer when it came to the issue of divorce. As we saw last time, he sort of believed in this no-fault divorce. He suggested that if a wife burns her husband's food, he has the right to divorce her. Those who followed that school a little bit later said that if the husband finds someone more beautiful, he can divorce her. Very modern thought, you'd have to agree. And it was the view that prevailed, which may have been what disciples were even taught. But it was a, well, first of all, a view that dishonored women because these rules only applied to men. (laughs) Only men could do this whole divorcing business. But as Jesus pointed out last time, it was profoundly dishonoring to what God had created. On Wednesday, we talked a little bit about the fact that there are biblical grounds for marriage and divorce, but it's always a tragedy, this business of divorce. It's nothing to be taken lightly, and yet this school seemed to be taking it very lightly. And that may be what's behind this remark, this surprise, you might almost say, of the disciples in verse 10. So in response to their comment, Jesus points us to another path on which his followers walk from time to time. And I think we would say that at some point in their life, all of God's followers, all of Jesus' disciples walk on this path. It's the path of celibacy. That is, living without sexual intimacy. We're going to talk about that a bit more. But he uses a word here in verse 12 that is a little bit odd. We're talking about singles, but he uses the word eunuch. Sounds like a terrible word to refer to singles by. But just hang on, don't get too angry, because Jesus redefines that word in verse 12, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the truth is that this call of Jesus to be single is not an easy call. It's not easy to be single, but here's another truth. It's also not easy to be married. I think we know that. I think the disciples knew that. I think that's what's behind the disciples' comment. Are you kidding me? A life sentence? That's too much. It's hard either way. They both require work. They both require living 
by faith in God's promises and trusting in his grace for us. Neither of those two is easy in our fallen world. And so we know, I know many singles who are convinced they won't be happy till they get married. But I also know many married people who would give anything to be single again. Somebody a long time ago said that in our fallen world, marriage is like a screen door with flies on the outside buzzing to get in and flies on the inside buzzing to get out. And there may be truth in that. So there's a calling. Some are called to be married and to glorify God in their marriages, but Jesus here mentions another path. Some are called to a life of celibacy. So that brings me to my second point. Why would anybody be called to a celibate life? This points to Christ's redemption. That those who live a single life for the kingdom of God are living witnesses to Christ's redeeming work. Just by the fact of their life, they are witnesses to Christ's redeeming work. Let me explain that. Eunuchs, the word that's used in verse 12, are, of course, those who are physically unable to marry or to have sex. In the Old Testament, eunuchs were actually forbidden from appearing before the presence of the Lord. This is remarkable. It was in a way, you might say, the law was saying creation is perfect and nothing but perfect is acceptable to a perfect and holy God. So, for example, if you read Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 and on, you see that priests couldn't serve. Even if you were in the priestly family, you couldn't serve if you had a defect, including if you were lame or if you were blind or if you were a eunuch. You couldn't serve in that temple in the service of the Lord. Later, rabbis extended that restriction to everybody, not just priests, but nobody could show up in the house of the Lord in the temple if they had defects, and they listed all the defects. For example, if you were deaf-mute, or listen to this, if you were of doubtful sex, or of double sex, or lame, or blind. Any kind of physical defect, and you couldn't appear in the presence of the Lord. Now, you and I can immediately see the problem, can't we? Those outward defects are just superficial. The real defect is the defect of the heart. That's where God looks. And if a human being examines you and say, yep, you look okay, you can get in, that is a superficial examination because God is examining us on the inside. So if really imperfection excludes us, then we're all excluded, aren't we? And so Jesus came as a redeemer. And we'll see in his ministry, if you look at the gospel, how he cuts across, he undoes that law, not by ignoring the reality of imperfection, but by redeeming those who are imperfect. Here's two examples. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, as he begins his ministry, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue, and he begins to preach by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He said his whole ministry is to restore, bring liberty to the captives, and sight to the blind. That is, those who are excluded are going to be restored. There's a very interesting passage in Matthew chapter 21, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it says that in chapter 21, verses 14 and 15, it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. I had never noticed that. In the temple. What are you doing in the temple? Did Jesus shoo them away? Wait, 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 you're not supposed to be here. No, it says he healed them. 
Many commentators think that that's one reason, among many, why the Pharisees were so infuriated at Jesus. You're allowing the blind and the lame to come into the temple. They shouldn't be here. But it's a new covenant, you see. It's the age of redemption. The Messiah has come. And in this new covenant, everyone is welcome. Eunuchs are welcome. In Acts chapter 8, a eunuch is baptized and becomes a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the presence of these eunuchs then is a testimony, a witness to the redeeming work of Christ. Something has changed. A whole new order has come, you see. And so now Jesus calls some to be eunuchs. So you have to keep that in mind that the very presence of eunuchs in the church is a sign, a witness to his new kingdom. But he redefines the word in verse 12. Let me just read it one more time. Matthew 19, 12. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. That is, nature has fallen. We talked about this last time. DNA, anatomy, physiology, it can be goofed up. What can we say? And some are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There were some who were victims, some who were slaves, some who became eunuchs because of greed. That is, there were some jobs, some prominent jobs in royal households, which were households of women, and to serve there, you had to be a eunuch, and they said, fine, you know, a career advancement move. But then there's a third category. Here's the important one. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept this. So there's some who are eunuchs by choice. It's not talking about surgery now. It's not talking about drugs to change how our body is or how it functions. But and by the way, it's not even talking about a change of appearance, how we look, how we dress, a haircut. It's talking about a spiritual reality. It's talking about those who have made a commitment to live without marriage and to live without sexual intimacy. Why? In order to serve the kingdom of heaven. In order to serve the kingdom of heaven. That's very important. That's the key. That's the motive for why they're doing it. They're doing it out of love for Jesus and his kingdom. They're doing it because they love King Jesus. If this is what serves you, King Jesus, then this is what I want to do. So let me just spell that out a little bit more. Some are singles for a season. And I think all of us who are Christians who came to faith early are singles for a season. God may intend for some to eventually marry, but until they marry, they honor the institution of marriage by refraining from sexual intimacy. They live a life of celibacy for the sake of Jesus the King. Some are single to honor God's word. There's some, and I think you can read their testimonies and their stories more and more and more and more places. There's some whose sexual desires don't align with what Jesus is teaching here about God making us male and female and marriage being the union of a man and a woman for a lifetime. And their desires, their sexual desires, don't line up with Jesus' definition. And they live celibate lives. Sam Alberry is a pastor and author, and he says that's true of him. He lives a celibate life, and here's what he writes. Singleness, like marriage has a unique way of testifying to the gospel of grace. He says, it's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy 
that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is ultimate. These things are not ultimate, but in Christ we possess what is ultimate. So there's some who for a season are celibate. There's some who are celibate because their desires don't align with what marriage requires in Christ's eyes. And then thirdly, there's some who purposely remain single in order to more effectively serve the kingdom. One man, a teacher, describes himself like this. He says, I pursued singleness because of my passion for studying and teaching scripture without distraction, as well as a recognition that I had the gift of celibacy. Celibacy is a gift. It's not for everyone. And then he writes this, there is a vibrancy to this choice that energizes you. I would not want to give up my gift of celibacy for anything. He has a gift and he serves God because of that gift. And he says, I would not want to give up this gift for anything. So there is a call of God, some married, some single. Those who are called to a single life bear witness to the redemption of Christ. And then lastly, it's Christ's gift to the church. And you know what Christ's gift to the church is? It's singles. I want to talk about that. The gift of singleness and the gift to the church of singleness. So singles have a gift. That's what verse 11 says in our text. Jesus said, not all men can accept this, but only to those to whom it has been given. It's a gift. And so that raises questions. What kind of a gift is this? Can singles really live happily without marriage and family? I think the whole world would laugh at that idea, wouldn't they? But here's Jesus' answer in a I'll read it from the Gospel of Luke, and it's an answer that I think challenges the church. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30. Peter said to Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is a rather startling promise. If you've given up wife or husband, in other words, he's talking to male disciples here, but if you've given up marriage and house and children for the sake of the kingdom, he says you will receive many times more in this life besides all the benefits that await you in the kingdom of heaven. How can that be? What does he mean? Well, because there's another family. There's a forever family of which God makes us a part in Christ Jesus. It's not a family that's united by physical blood, by DNA, but it's a family that's united by Christ's blood, by his death, by which we are all baptized into the body of Christ. And in this family, we live together as brothers and sisters who love and care for each other. That's the eternal family of which all of us are a part. And I think as a church, maybe I should say as churches even, we have to do better. We have to do much better. You know, our culture thinks that everything has to be done as couples. Once you become a couple, you eat as a couple, you sit as a couple, you walk as a couple. It's like there's something wrong between you if people see you sitting in different seats. Everything is done as a couple. We pair up. And we ought not to fall for that in a church. Do we really have to sit as couples when we come together? Why can't we sit as brothers and sisters when we eat or when we worship 
when we sing the praises of God. There is a family of God, and God's made us all part of that family. And we live there as brothers and sisters. And as God's family, we have to show that in the way we talk and the way we interact and the way we treat one another. So can singles be happy without family and marriage? Well, there is a family for them that God has provided. Can singles be happy without sexual intimacy? Yes, if that's their gift. I'm not saying it's not a struggle. This whole business of sexual desires is a struggle whether you're married or single. It doesn't matter. But if this is their gift, yes, they can be happy. The secular answer, of course, in the world is no way. You can't do it. It's wrong even to ask it. It's against nature. Instead, what we should do, we hear in the world, is to make it easy and safe for people to express this desire as often as they want. But that's not what Jesus teaches. Of course, for some, it's unbearable. It's unbearable to not have this intimacy, and Scripture addresses that. In Paul's epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 3, he says that some burn with a passion, and it's so prevalent in their life that they're unable really to serve Christ because they're always distracted with the thought of finding a mate. It's always in their mind. What then? He says, well, it's obvious. Get married. Don't dishonor marriage by engaging in sexual immorality to satisfy this, but better, he says, to marry than to burn with this passion. And so Jesus says, this gift is given to some. It's not for all. Some are called to marriage. But to some, this gift is given. I might point out that this is not a higher gift than others. You know, there is this flavor in the church that comes through church history every now and then that those who are celibate are therefore spiritually on a higher plane. Some even think that sex itself is low, that even in marriage, it speaks more of our animal passions than of our spiritual nature. And they look down on marriage. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told to disregard people like that, that they're wrong. They're disregarding what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 19, what God called very good in the book of Genesis, when he made us male and female, and he celebrated when they became one flesh. So it's not a higher gift. But friends, neither is being single a lower gift. And sometimes we treat it that way. So as you look at the list of apostles or disciples, Some were married. In fact, it seems like most of them were married, but there were some who were single, like Paul. Paul was single, as was Jesus, of course. And so you look at the women who are mentioned in the New Testament, some were married. Joanna is mentioned as being the wife of Chusa. We know that Priscilla was the wife of Aquila. They were significant in the ministry of the church. But then there's many women who were single, like Mary Magdalene. Like Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany. They were all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, all significant in his ministry. Some were called to marriage, some were called to singleness. So it says, to some it is given. It's a gift. It's a gift that God gives to some. Paul said he had this gift. Paul said, God has called me to be single. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 and 8, he said it's not for everyone. And if it's not for you, then get married. But as you read those texts, you can't help but notice how glad he has that he has this amazing gift from God. He seems to say, if you knew how blessed I am to have this gift, you'd want it too. He's really happy. You might almost say proud. He's exulting in this gift. I wish you had it too, he says. 
So, singles are those who have this special gift from God to live the way God has called them to do for the glory of his kingdom. But there's one other thing I want to say about this gift. Not only do they have this gift, but they are also a gift to the church. It's, I think, sad. I think it's sinful that this gift of celibacy is not honored and valued and treasured in the church. That singles are not treasured in the church of Jesus Christ. One single woman writes this. I think these words are heartbreaking. I want what God wants, and I'm happy serving him single. The hard part is the cultural shame of singleness. Being seemingly unwanted and undesirable is painful. The older I get, the weirder I feel. I think we should examine our attitude towards singles. Do we adopt the attitude of our culture or do we adopt the attitude of Jesus who sees them as specially gifted to serve the kingdom of God? How do they serve us? I think I could go on and on. Let me just mention two things about singles. First of all, I think singles call us away from idolatry, which tempts many, many Christians. What kind of idolatry? Particularly the idolatry of sex, but also the idolatry of marriage and family. Sex replacing the Lord Jesus Christ, but so often marriage and family replacing the call of God upon our life. They call us away from the idolatry, for example, of sex. They are examples to all of their brothers and sisters showing that what is necessary is not sex, but the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's sufficient for us. We need to be told that. Tim Keller, the author, reminds us, he says, in the world, singleness means a life of freedom and self-serving pleasure, including sex, or it means frustration and unhappiness waiting to be married and have children. See, in the world, there's those two options, and that's it. But he says in the kingdom, singleness means fruitfulness for the kingdom. So people are single, not because, well, I can't find anyone, so I'm stuck. Not because, well, you know, I really don't have any sexual desires. But I joyfully choose this lifestyle because I love Jesus and I want to honor him and I want to serve his kingdom. That's the ultimate priority. And singles teach us that. David Bennett is an example of a man who came to trust Jesus sometime in his young adulthood. And he came to understand as he trusted Jesus that Jesus' definition of marriage and sexuality was wise and good and right and true. And so he had a change in his whole lifestyle. And he says he still has sexual desires, but he lives celibately as a single. Here's what he says. I have way more joy in my life living the way I do than I did before. And then he says this, we have a crisis of desire in our society and we don't know what loving self-denial looks like. We don't know what self-denial looks like, but singles are living examples to us, all of that, of something that we all have to learn and grow in. So that's one thing. I think singles are a, you might say, prophetic, they preach to us with their lives calling us away from the idolatry of sex and marriage and family so that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. Here's the second thing. Singles are a gift to the church as they teach, as they love us, as they serve us, because they do it better 
than anyone else. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 32-34, it says that single serve without distractions. That means whatever other gifts they have are used better than someone else who might have the same gifts. All the wonderful gifts that they have by which they serve the body and serve the kingdom and lift up God's name, all those gifts are amplified because they're single. They're magnified because they're single. They bear more fruit because they're single. So what it means is that it's a gift that enhances all the other gifts that these people have, and so we ought to treasure these people. These are people that are a gift to the church. So what am I saying? As I conclude, let me just say that we're all called to serve the kingdom of heaven. That's true, isn't it? Whatever you're called, however you're called to do it, do it with happiness. Our Lord calls us to do it. If you're married, 1 Corinthians 7 says, don't spend time thinking about how to get out of it. Don't waste your time with that. Instead, think of how you can happily serve the kingdom as a married man, as a married woman. Be happy where you are. And if you're single, then be happy. Exult in it. Be happy because Lord Jesus himself has called you to this. Because the Lord Jesus himself has made you a very wonderful emblem of his redemptive work. And rejoice in this because the Lord Jesus has gifted you with a special gift which is a blessing to the whole church. God bless us all as we serve the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our king as we sang earlier. You are our Lord, wise and good and loving. And you know us, Lord. You know us in our fallenness. And so, along with all your other titles, we rejoice to call you our Savior, our Redeemer, our Healer, our Restorer. Pray, Lord, that there is no one in this room, no one listening, who feels excluded from you. You don't exclude, Lord, but you redeem. Pray, Lord, that you would invite all of us into your presence to experience all the grace and all the riches of blessing that you have for your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. God has made us men and women, sexual beings, but don't we struggle, all of us, with our sexual desires? I think we all do. I think it's true. Prone to wander, the hymn writer says, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's what I want you to know. No matter what your desires are, Jesus loves you and wants to heal you and restore you as you allow him to become your Lord and your God. So here's my benediction. May God give you thankfulness as you notice his work in you. And may God give you confidence that he who has begun this good work will bring it to completion. Amen.